This week, I'm going to talk about data-driven unit tests. Ooh, I've done those. Yeah? Yeah. Because, um, well, we'll talk about it in a second, yeah. but I've actually, I haven't been able to find any public examples of that. Uh, so, mm-hmm. interesting. Uh, but first, tiny bit of follow-up. So I did get a response back from a um, friend of the show, uh, Alexis Gallagher, a friend of mine anyway, uh, whom I know from NS Coder Night in San Francisco. And now, I said last week during my topic that I thought someone from NS Coder Night had mentioned the idea that enumerations with associated values being used for return types was something that came from other older languages. And he said that probably came from him. And so I will put uh, a link to his tweet in the show notes, and I will also link to the website that he, the page on the website that he talked about. So he says, this is Apple's new name for a very old concept from standard ML and other typed uh, functional programming languages. Oh, wow. I think that's our first ML shout out. I can't believe it took us to whatever episode this is <laughs> before you mentioned ML, but there you go. Well, and me mentioning it too, because I did look at the, the page and it was an interesting read, but there's just so much that I'm not familiar with about ML that it was really, I would have to get more familiar with the language to really understand what's going on mm-hmm. with that paper. But if you're interested, go have a look. And yes, I would also think that it's pretty likely that they took this from, from older stuff rather than making it up out of whole cloth themselves. Mm-hmm. So, so interesting, interesting stuff. So as far as tests go, I have been writing a lot of unit tests recently from my own home project. And they are using a lot of, they're, they're data-driven instead of code-driven. Now, I looked at a couple of open-source projects before I came on here today. And the ones which have a lot of tests, well, there's a couple. Uh, AF Networking has a decent amount of tests. RESTKit has a, has a lot of tests. And also, I think there might be some for, for KISSXML. Those were the three that I looked at anyway. Mm-hmm. But when I looked at them, even when, even when they have a lot of tests, they're not data-driven. Now, the tests were all, all of these projects are using Xcode's test infrastructure, which was uh, CentEst, did they call it something else? OC unit. Yeah, OC unit, right. OC unit. Um, but they have, they have switched to a new one called XC test, mm-hmm. which, you know, if they're really trying to get people to, to not capitalize the C in Xcode, this is not <laughs> the way to do it. But it's pretty much the same, the same stuff. And the idea behind it is that you, you have, you know, any method that starts with the name test, lowercase t, will get run. And it really kind of seems like it's, it's set up such that, you know, you're meant to put code in each one of those methods that you write, and they're each supposed to be unique and do the thing. And that's what these projects do. They, they just, if they need to do setup, they do a little, you know, they, they cut and paste the same setup code over and over so, for example... Well, in, you are supposed yeah. to have, like, a setup function, right? Yeah, oh, they're not the, really doing that oh, okay. for these things. Um, and I've actually found... I haven't found that to be as useful as you might think. Yeah, I agree. Myself? Yeah. But in this case, they didn't even do that. But even if you did sort of... If you did do it that way, I mean, the trouble with doing it that way is that you then always get exactly the same setup, which is not what I want. Exactly. What well, I usually want... Yeah, yeah it has yeah. to be kind of contextual. Right. Well, so the, the three things that I would generally want from my tests are the setup, which is, which is creating the objects, creating the object state that I need to do the test, and then actually calling the methods of, that I'm actually testing. And so those are usually two different things. It's usually, okay, setting it up exactly the way I want, mm-hmm. and then invoking it with exactly the right parameters. Mm-hmm. 
And then the third thing is, of course, the expected values that come out of the method that you're testing. And what I have found over and over again is that I'm doing that enough. I want to do tests, enough tests, test a whole bunch of edge cases, different combinations of data, that it doesn't make sense for me to cut and paste the creation API calls over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of cut and pasted code. And it also means that it would be very hard to go back and change these tests or add another test at a particular point later because you're just wading through so much verbiage with so many calls that it's just, it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't help with what you're trying to do. So what I wound up doing, and I think I must have gotten this particular format from Apple at some point. Someone at Apple was doing something like this. I don't remember exactly what anymore, but I would suspect it came from it because it's just, it's just something that I'm so used to doing now. I've done it for years and years that I don't think I came up with it whole, out of whole cloth. Is what I will do is I will then say, okay, I need a data format that I will read in, and then I, I don't have to write code for each test. I just have to write a, a little bit of a little bit of data and a particular structure to to do that with. And the way I do it is for each kind of test, I make a struct, and then the struct has all those things that I just talked about. It has the, the setup data. It has usually have a name that's a descriptive name for it because I've got a lot of tests. I want to be able to tell which one it is when it's failing without doing a lot of spelunking. And then I have the setup data and then I have the, the, the parameters for the method and then I have the, the expected values. And so the expected values are expected foo, expected bar, things like that. And then what I do is I say, well, I want a whole bunch of these tests. So I make a, a static global variable in my source code, constant which is a C array of those structs. And then at the end of that, then I make another int value, which is the auto-calculated number of tests, right? And it's pretty simple, right? You take, so you take the size of, you know, size of the, that uh, keyword in parens, the size of your, your, your global variable, mm-hmm. which was the whole thing, divided by the size of the struct. Yeah, and that, I, I know that Omni actually has that nice macro for this. Uh, I think they call yeah. it like array count, but yeah, the standard. I mean, this totally should be in the C standard, but oh well. Right. Well, and the nice thing about that is then I don't have to keep incrementing a, a constant somewhere separately with my tests. It mm-hmm. keeps, keeps up with my tests. And then in my test method, we you know test foo, test whatever, I then just iterate through that list, you know, zero to the count. And then what I need to do, because this is, and there are probably other ways to do this, but the way I do it then is because it's a, it's a, it's something that's a static variable. It's created um, at the time the application is is launched. It can't have any custom objects in it. It can only consist of scalar values and Objective C strings, because those are also something that can that are in the data segment of your of your application uh-huh. because of the, the extra magic that Apple does in that case. You can't use it for things like uh, objective C numbers and that sort of thing. That Although that would seem like it would be the same sort of thing, you know, constant numbers and constant arrays and things. Uh-huh. Those can only be instantiated at runtime while you're running instead of as data. Uh, and so I have to put all this extra code in there to translate all that scalar data and all those strings into the objects that I actually want. So I've got a little bit of some extra code there to do all that. If I want arrays of things, I use C arrays inside my struct because that's possible with a 
a definite, a, a, a specific number of, of elements in it. And then what I usually do when I'm translating that C array of data into my actual NS array of, of data, whatever I need, I'll, I'll do a test at the beginning, which says, well, if there's a value in there, which is a pointer to a, a Objective-C string, for example, you know, if that's nil, then I know that I'm at the end. I mean, so it, it's still pretty easy to have a variable number of, of elements in my, in, in my data that I'm trying, making my tests out of. But it is a little bit of extra glue code to make all of that put together. And then, so then I run those tests and then I, I, you know, I create my, my objects that I need and then I call the method that I want to get called and then I use my XE, XCT assert, you know, with all my, my tests and, you know, XCT assert not nil or whatever and do it that way. And that does work, and that works pretty well. But the the problem that I've found with that is that then if something goes wrong, if I if my tests fail, the the breakpoint is in the point in the code where the test is getting run from, but it's not pointing me back huh. to my data. Right. And I've got all this data, you, you know, I've got hundreds of tests in some cases, and it's a real pain to have to keep going back through that and making that happen that way make me and keep keep making that connection okay one thing's failed or you know five things have failed mm -hmm. in this whole giant thing okay now i have to go find them and now i have to turn off all the other tests and uh, comment out the other ones and then just do those it's a real it's a real pain um and so what i would really like and the way i i think about this at this point is so these data structures are completely custom on my end. I'm doing all the ex I'm doing all the the work to make these happen in ways that I don't see anybody else doing. That feels a lot like the way we used to have to make controllers for our views mm -hmm. and for our windows. Before Apple came up with these new classes, you know, there was no UI view controller. You made it just a controller and it was a completely custom class. It didn't inherit from anything and you had to you know, connect everything yourself and do all that. And what Apple did when they made a, a standardized class is they said, well, a lot of these things that you've been doing in an entirely custom fashion, we will now provide you the infrastructure to do in a more standardized way. It's not all entirely standardized, but it's better. And so now more code that all of us write looks the same as everybody else's code. It's not an exact uh, analogy, but I think it's, it's got some merit to it. I would really love if there were a way that you could associate data with a test such that when the thing asserts, it points back to your actual data. Now, the trouble with this is my way of making this data is probably, again, not something that Apple would necessarily do. Having all these structs in your .m file is a little weird. Yeah. And I will, I will agree with that. But there aren't really any other better ways to do it that I have found. You could make a plist. Mm -hmm. a separate POS that has a particular structure to it. What I have found when I tried that is that actually going back and forth between the POST and your code is a pain. Oh, really? Okay. And it didn't gain me much of anything. It didn't make it more browsable. In fact, if it's an XML POS, it actually made it less browsable because mm -hmm. there's more verbiage around it. Right. And, and you know, and especially, you know, the way Apple shows POS in, in Xcode, it's, it's got that custom format where you have to disclose everything. And blah, 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 blah. I don't like that. For this format, anyway. For other other ways of doing plist, that's great. But for data, I just want my data. I don't want you giving me a, a special <laughs> format for it, special have, UI for it. Have you considered JSON? Um, can JSON do all the stuff? I mean, serializing into and out of JSON, 
Um, I guess that's easier than it used to be. Yeah, yeah, with NSJSON uh, class uh, serialization, yeah. yeah. That's that's newer actually than the last time I re I revisited this. Okay, okay. So that I know it's yeah. been a couple of years now, but that's uh-huh. so I could do that. And if I did that, I think that might it might that would bring me closer to what Apple might do. Although I don't think Apple's necessarily going to approach this, but I think it's true considering what Apple's done with JSON recently that it's 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 more likely they'd use JSON than virtually anything else. But they might just use plists. And yeah, the, the, suck. I mean, plists actually, I agree with you, the verbiage is horrendous, and the UI which you edit, it doesn't cut the mustard. Um, the, the problem with JSON is that its data types are extremely, extremely limited. For example, it doesn't yeah. have even like built-in dates. And so that's where plists really shine. The type of data types we deal with every day as Cocoa programmers are exactly represented in, in plist form. Yeah, and it's just, you know, as we've as we've noted, the way Apple handles JSON is not as good as the way they handle plists. There are there are problems with how they how they do it, how they read it out. I don't know. It it just it it seems like you know they're they're reinventing the wheel if mm-hmm. they go to JSON now. Mm-hmm. But so I would actually be interested in if if people have have done lots of data driven stuff themselves, if they have their own interesting ways of of making it work, of making it work with Apple stuff, because while it works pretty well for me, it doesn't scale as well as I would like. Mm-hmm. So that's that's pretty much it. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know. I'm not introducing a new framework to deal with it, you know, because the trouble is when you're dealing with Apple's infrastructure, there's really only so much you can do mm-hmm. right. with that. I would, I'm not even sure I could hack it to make it do anything different mm-hmm. than it does right now. So we're really pretty limited, unless I would, you know, and I have been tempted to, oh my God, write your own, you know your own testing infrastructure to take Apple's place. And no, 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 no I'm <laughs> not going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to live with what I have, but I'm interested in improvements. Mm-hmm. So that's it. Okay. Yeah. The, um, when you were talking about the kind of data stuff, like last time that I've dealt with this is the, uh, so rails has pretty good, uh, test testing infrastructure. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. they, uh, for like the, the, basically the scenario talking about with, with data, they call it fixtures. And it's, so it's really easy with Rails to have like a YAML file instead of like a real MySQL database on the back end that has all your tables and rows set up, you know, basically you, uh, exactly you, you need it for your tests and have a bunch of those in nicely human editable YAML format. Yeah. Although YAML can totally go off the Rails, you know. Well, well that was, <laughs> I did not mean that as a pun. But, um, <laughs> but you know, uh, but yes, it's, and so I was surprised when you said that as, uh, that uh, to actually get out of the source code for all the problems you mentioned, that you found that having an external file actually was more problematic. But once you actually, I, I would, you know, I'm still a big fan of ASCII plists, and you know they're deprecated to all to hell. <laughs> but I, I still write no. them out, and they're beautiful, yep. man. They're beautiful. They're beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would be great if there was a way to use the serialization mechanisms that that Apple has, that Apple's frameworks have to do this. You know, even something like. The, the you know the zip format the XML you know because you can serialize objects that way, mm-hmm. but it's just uh I would just it just it, Apple's you know interface builder is not the place to be editing this stuff, mm-hmm. and using an Apple a, a more um, um, undocumented proprietary format like like the zip format just I just don't want to commit to that yeah so yeah it would be really nice if there was something that was that they were guaranteed to support in the future but. 
Uh, I don't see it. Okay, yeah. so I want one of our listeners who are obviously very very intelligent for listening to us. I wanted you to write UTF eight plus so we can because plus I think we're only we're even limited to ASCII. You could like escape stuff or something, but so I want a plist format that's you know super Coco friendly that is <laughs> modern. So you someone write a serialization library for us so we just can so we just can ignore the XML variant. <laughs> okay, so I guess uh, probably time for my topic. Uh, mm-hmm. So my topic is semantic versioning versus romantic versioning. So romantic versioning, yes, yeah, so, I love that. So you know, dim see, the lights. See, that was me preparing. Light the for... candles. Oh, oh! Did you actually read yeah. my notes? I, I did read your notes. Wow! Look at you! Look at you! It <laughs> <laughs> wasn't I... wasn't that much better. Yeah. <laughs> now, now. <laughs> Okay, well, okay. Uh, so, semantic versioning, which I think I've at least mentioned obliquely on the show. So, I'll give a, a quick little background for people who haven't heard of. So, there's a website called semver, S-E-M-V-E-R dot org, where you can get the real details and the spec and kind of the rationale behind it. Um, but it's basically this uh, specific is standard written by Tom Preston Warner, uh, co-founder of GitHub, who um, it's... It, it's the type of way that programmers tend to use version numbers, he basically encodes it in a very sane way. Um... And it's, I should mention that semantic versioning is meant for versioning APIs, that is programming interfaces, not for user-facing software. So don't use semantic versioning necessarily for user-facing software, although I am basically using, <laughs> using it for Mo generator, and that's why I'm up to 1.27, because uh, <laughs> it is a programmer tool, so I think it's fine. Yes, but. I wouldn't consider that to be user-facing. Yeah, okay, good point. Yeah. And so, um, and so, I am a big proponent of semantic versioning, and um, a, l- a little foreshadowing here. I think it it uh, it might be a key ingredient for kind of how software needs to be re- represented in the future. But that's a topic for another day, and maybe another project. Uh, so the basic idea: if you look at a version number like two point three point four, so two would be the major version, three is the minor version, and four is the patch version. And the so when you would increment the major version when you make incompatible API changes. So in this case, um, in 2.3.4, it's already gone through one incompatible API change. So maybe they, they deprecated class and then it got removed. So that means your code could, will, may no longer work with it. Uh, the minor is for when you add functionality in a way that's backwards compatible. So if you add a new class or add a method or, or, or maybe... Um, Add more semantics to even if the contract, even there's like the the method signatures haven't changed. But if you like, in like it adds more flexibility to what's already there. Maybe a new interpretation, maybe an integer that's passed in. You probably want to increment that minor. And the patch version is basically for backwards compatible bug fixes. Um, so while doing some research on the topic, I also came upon Ruby Gems rational versioning policy which seems to be a heck of a lot like semantic versioning. And I actually couldn't really tell which one came first, but semantic versioning seems to be a bit more all-encompassing and is not tied just to RubyGems. So um, I just want to throw it out there. So Jeremy Ashkenes, who wrote uh, Underscore and Backbone and uh, kind of, uh, kind of uh, JavaScript-y, computer science-y, uh, Man About Town, uh, he wrote this. Uh, he so he has this this pack this uh, package called underscore.js, which gives you kind of functional programming kind of stuff um, for JavaScript. And he apparently so he's like underscores at like one point six or something like that. And he w- was going to 
uh, incremented to 1.7 because he made a a minor change, but it wasn't backwards compatible. And this apparently kicked off a lot of hullabaloo because he's breaking semantic versioning. <laughs> and so he wrote this this uh, nice, I want to call it blog posting, even though it's, I mean, if you're hipster blogging, then all you're just posting gists. So it's, po- <laughs> it's posted as a gist on GitHub, and we'll include a link to it. And the title of it is Why Semantic Versioning Isn't. And I, as soon as I saw that there was controversy in semantic versioning land, says, my ears perked up <laughs> because because what we need is another controversy. But no, it's like of course it's boring versioning number stuff. Like there can be controversy about this, but uh, uh, so I knew it would be a good read because Jeremy is a smart guy, and uh, sure, I was not disappointed. So I'm going to quote from his uh, blog posting here, um, and I'm and it's not going to be a direct quote. This is same time here, but. Um, but semantic versioning changes this to prioritize a mechanic, a mechanist, mechanistic, mecha, mechanistic. There, mechanistic. There, you got it. Wow, mechanistic understanding of the code base over a human one. Any quote breaking change to the software must be accompanied with a new major version number. It's all right for robots, but bad for us. Semantic versioning tries to compress a huge amount of information: the nature of the change, the percentage of users it will it will be affected by the change, the severity of the change. Into a, into a single number. And unsurprisingly, it's impossible to, for that single number to contain enough meaningful information. Ultimately, semantic versioning is a false promise that appeals to many developers. The promise of pain-free, don't-have-to-think-about-it, updates to dependencies. And so he goes on to kind of point out that it... it well, I'll just read the next thing. Um... The responsible way to upgrade isn't to blindly pull in dependencies and assume all is well just because the version number says so. The responsible way is to set aside 5 or 10 minutes every once in a while to go through and update your dependencies and not make any minor changes that need to be made at the time. If an important security fix happens in a version that also contains a breaking change for your app, you still need to adjust your app to get the fix, right? So his basic thrust is that, um, that number one, that semantic versioning it doesn't give you a, a, this fine-grained kind of... It, that's the opposite. It gives you too fine-grained kind of binary switch about if he made this pretty superficial change to underscore that probably wouldn't affect most of the clients. But in semantic versioning land, that means he has to upgrade from 1.6 to 2.0. And, and if you look at it in terms of the romantic way, you know, human beings look at that 2.0 and like, whoa, this is you know a pretty major change. Like, what's what's going on here? I I seriously need to look at this. So I I, I agree with him that the semantics of semantic versioning doesn't actually match very well with kind of like humans parts this type of stuff. Um, it it is great for robots and it is and isn't great for humans. Um, but I have to take point with his idea that, um, that essentially he, his other argument is that semantic versioning isn't, isn't, isn't actually uh, living up to its hype. That the idea that people can, uh, uh, you can uh, basically say like RubyGems has this concept and, and, uh, node, uh, NPM modules have this concept that you can say, Hey, I'm using 1.2 of this library. And if someone ships 1.2.1, 1.2.2, 1.2.3, 2. that's all cool. And I just should be able to accept those updates essentially blindly and automatically. Um, and he's right that it that's, sometimes this breaks. So this other guy a year ago, Brandon Bloom, 
wrote Semantic Versioning, A Technical Solution to a Social Problem. And he has this great paragraph, which I'll quote here. Beautifully simple semantics outlined by a clear and concise specification. What's not to like? Technically, semantic versioning is very strong. However, statistically speaking, software developers cannot be trusted to maintain the semantics promised by semantic versioning. A small handful of individuals and projects use semantic versioning or something like it to good effect. The rest can't be trusted not to introduce major bugs or breaking changes with each and every revision. Well, I'm sorry to report that is that is true, and the reality does not live up to the hype. And well, that's because um, developers aren't robots. Exactly right. It's a, you know programming is a human endeavor, and the nice thing about semantic versioning is that it does give us a touchstone where that we can classify that as a mistake. And so the Jeremy's idea that you know that essentially semantic versioning. Uh, technically isn't is uh, that we should it's not living up to what what the utopian vision of it should be that you still need to go through and actually look at your opinions all that Uh, i view that as a bug and and it's tempting to kind of say well it's it's not living up to the to the hype now and that so you have to do the stuff manually um i i i I think that software is is going to continue to probably get finer and finer grained, and at least that, that's a, a way I'd like to push software. And what works now uh, for for the like three things you depend on. Um, this, of course, is more applicable to the non Apple, uh, non monolithic Apple developers, where we just re- tend to rely on Apple for everything. But in kind of the more open source, the other platforms type stuff. But Apple or Matt Thompson. Oh, there you go. All right, and the in order to get to this future, we're going to have to uh, we're going to need to be able to automate this stuff. And this is, I would say, probably the most aggressive, fine grained um, use of software I've seen today is actually in Node with NPM, and they really like their micro libraries, probably even to a fault. But and and the thing is, it's actually pretty much working uh and it's partially because and actually not even partially largely because of semantic versioning and the contracts that are that are being advertised yes those contracts can be broken and that but fortunately that means that it's very explicit what's going on is that someone published a broken broken contract and that needs to be fixed and that's you know ripe uh github issue to file against it and it probably would be closed pretty rapidly um so uh, my it basically comes down to kind of like I feel like the will is strong, but the flesh is weak kind of thing. That semantic versioning to me has its place, and I agree that it's not great for user user facing software, and it's it's also not great in terms of the romantic kind of idea that that we saw with underscore with the 2.0 having you know for human beings we we think oh my god that's a that's a significant upgrade when it wasn't it was essentially essentially a bug fix. Um. And yes, uh, people aren't aren't totally living up to the promise today. But really, until until our software gets really good in terms of like deep introspection of of uh, compatible data structures, and uh, I don't see that see anything better on the horizon. And semantic versioning is really incredibly lightweight, and is actually doing its job very well. So I'm still a proponent of it. So you you're against romance. I've always been against romance. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So if that's it, that's it. We'll see you next time.